Hi there. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers with an extra special, extra patriotic bonus show for you this week. <laughs> uh, not a Bowery Boys episode, but we are both in it. Yes. Periodically here, we'll be dropping in some of the greatest hits from our former spinoff podcast called The First, Stories of Inventions and Their Consequences. Now, in this particular episode that you'll hear today, I look at the history of the Pledge of Allegiance, those patriotic words that most American children grew up reciting in school. So that was a show that I hosted solo, but in this episode, this is why it's very special, Tom makes a big appearance. Yes, as a performer, as a voice actor <laughs> in the show. And because in those first episodes, you sometimes included special guests who enacted the words of the central figures in the show, there was a lot of vocal performance going mm -hmm. on <laughs> on the first. So in this particular episode today, I appear from time to time as the voice of the Baptist minister and author of the Pledge of Allegiance, Francis Bellamy. So just when you hear my voice, imagine me in a kind of like, you know, stiff, gray, ministerial <laughs> suit. An austere, theatrical gentleman. Um, you'll also yes. hear, though, it's, it's more than that. You'll also hear the voices of other people reading various versions of the pledge throughout history. And all of those voices are related to Tom. <laughs> Yes, including my sister Elizabeth, her two children, my niece and nephew, and of course, the very French voice of my husband, Guillaume. <laughs> it's a very Myers episode. In fact, you're like the Von wow. Trapp family of podcasting. <laughs> I did have two other brothers, Greg, who I had to explain why they didn't make the cut. Oh, there were only so many versions of the pledge. If there had been just a few more, we could have gotten the whole family tree in on the action. <laughs> But now we we hope you enjoy the very surprising history of the Pledge of Allegiance. On October 21st, 1892, hundreds and perhaps thousands of schoolchildren, we're not exactly sure how many, stood up and said the following words. I pledge allegiance to my flag and the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. These words were not found in the Constitution. They were never heard by any of the Founding Fathers. In fact, the original version was penned over 100 years after the founding of our nation. Far from being a stolid, immutable oath, these words have changed as America has changed reflecting an evolving body of citizens and their beliefs. I pledge allegiance to my flag and to the republic which it sounds, one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. These are more than mere words for many people. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. But for one man, this was more than a pledge. It was his claim to fame. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. 
This is the story of the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, don't take this the wrong way, but when I hear the words of the Pledge of Allegiance, I don't immediately think patriotism, even though it's literally the embodiment of patriotism, all 31 words. When I hear the pledge, I think of Portland Elementary School in Springfield, Missouri, which is the town I was born in. I was there at Portland from kindergarten to sixth grade, from Ms. Messick to Mrs. Jeffries. And every class I ever attended at Portland began with the recitation of the pledge. It's all tied in with memories of half pints of milk, sawdust smelling hallways, and games of foursquare with a utility ball. It's a requirement in most American states to have teachers in public schools lead the Pledge of Allegiance once a day, although every state words their requirements a little differently. This is, after all, a Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, a fixture of most American schools and classrooms. This doesn't even really seem strange today. The activity, our honor of the flag, the words of the pledge, seem as embedded in American civic life as the Constitution and the White House. Now, there were certainly oaths back in the days of the Founding Fathers, statements of devotion by those newly naturalized as Americans. At the completion of the Civil War, with the Confederacy surrendering to the Union Army, it seemed a cohesion under one flag had returned. But just 20 years after the war, you still had an America that felt very fragmented. But to many, a greater fear of disloyalty lay in the millions of new arrivals from Europe who came to these shores in massive numbers in the 1870s and 1880s, the start of a second wave of immigration from Italy, Russia, Poland, and other Eastern European countries in a disharmony of different languages. A new patriotism, an American nationalism, began to emerge in the 1880s as the center of citizenship. For some, America could no longer harbor immigrant cultures freely, or at least as expressed in the words of Emma Lazarus, give us your tired, your poor, the new Colossus, which she wrote in 1883. Many wished for those immigrants to explicitly express a devotion to their new home. The first pledge in widespread use, geared to the reverence of the American flag, was written in 1885 by Civil War Colonel George Balch. It went a little something like this. We give our heads and hearts to God and our country. One country, one language, and one flag. The sentiment is similar to our current pledge, but as you've noticed, I hope, there's one big difference the phrase, one language. Balch worked for the New York school system in the 1880s and saw firsthand children of immigrants celebrating un-American holidays. His pledge became a standard bearer in some American schools. According to an 1897 journal, The Eastern Star, quote, the results in the metropolis is more directly seen in the absence from the rooms of the schools of the foreign flags that used to displace old glory on days of public rejoicing and the general desire to elevate the stars and stripes on all occasions. Balch's pledge would soon be forgotten, however, overshadowed by a more popular phrasing made by a well-known publication of the day, 
not a famous newspaper or news journal. No, this was a children's magazine named The Youth's Companion. It started in Boston in 1827 and soon became required reading for New England children during the mid-19th century, soon becoming a national magazine, attracting important authors of the day like Emily Dickinson and Mark Twain. Thanks to its cracking new publisher named David Sharp Ford. Ford not only filled the pages of the youth's companion with articles, it was bursting with advertisements for a wide variety of products or premiums. Bicycles, games, rifles, jackknives, household items. In 1886, Ford hired James B. Upham, an early marketing genius, to help promote the magazine's premium business. And two years later, in 1888, the youth's companion began selling American flags. Now remember that earlier pledge by Mr. Bouch? Well, that was 1885. The Statue of Liberty opened in 1886. A patriotic fervor was hitting the nation. Ford and Upham saw a moral duty in promoting the American flag as the true symbol of America. And if they made a little money off of it, well, why not? In 1888, they began a program called Flag Over the Schoolhouse, encouraging people to buy flags for their local school. They also offered home flags, pocket flags, essay contests about flags, and fostering patriotic youth groups across the country. Thanks to Upham, thousands of flags have been sold and distributed by the summer of 1891, when six new states entered the Union, bringing the number of states and stars to 44. It was in the summer that Upham got word of a national celebration, not to the flag or the Revolutionary War, but to the man who, quote, discovered America in 1492, Christopher Columbus. Now, our views of Columbus today are a bit more complex than they used to be. Not that they weren't a little complicated even back in 1892. Columbus's story appealed not only to those who saw the explorer's journey across the sea as the first chapter of the American experience, but also to one of the largest immigrant groups arriving into the country in the 1890s, the Italians. Festivities celebrating the 400th anniversary of his arrival will culminate with the Chicago World's Fair of 1893 the very same fair where George Washington Ferris would debut his marvelous Ferris wheel and an old daguerreotype of Dorothy Catherine Draper from the early days of photography would again be displayed. But many months before the fair would open, in October of 1892, many cities would prepare to hold a Columbus Day observance. The youth's companion wanted to get in on the action, making public schools and the magazine's flag program a centerpiece of the patriotic glory. And so, in 1891, Ford, the magazine's publisher, hired a newly out-of-work Baptist minister as the head of the Columbus Day Steering Committee, a man who would forever change his country. His name was Francis Julius Bellamy. Christian socialist minister and author of the Pledge of Allegiance. 
Bellamy was born in 1855 in Mount Morris, New York, a man who gave himself over to the Baptist ministry at a young age. His love for America complemented his adherence to scripture in many ways, but in working with poor laborers in the New York State area, he began seeing American capitalist ways as running counter to the words of Christ. He was certainly influenced by his cousin Edward Bellamy, an author whose utopian beliefs were in full display in a huge bestseller. The 1888 book Looking Backward, a novel set far in the future, in the year 2000. Bellamy's nationalist clubs, espousing a lean towards socialist values, sprouted up across the country. You may remember from my last episode on the life of Thomas Watson, the assistant to Alexander Graham Bell, that Mr. Watson had produced a newspaper for one of Bellamy's nationalist clubs in Massachusetts. Now, Cousin Francis, the Baptist minister, spoke from the pulpit both of the purity of America and the corrupting influences of capitalism. This was, after all, the era of the robber baron. Unfortunately for Bellamy, his congregation did not always smile upon his unique mix of political beliefs, and by 1891, he was out of a job. But his patriotic verve and earnest persuasiveness made him a great fit for David Sharp Ford's magazine, The Youth's Companion, and he was soon hired to help in the Columbus Day campaign. It was a staggering commitment for a young man untrained in wide affairs, and I accepted it with trembling. Bellamy threw himself into the work, knitting together a program that could be installed in American public schools, and one which would interpret the celebration of Columbus as a display of nationalist pride focused not specifically on the Italian explorer per se, but on the physical symbol of the United States, the American flag. Flags which would be provided, coincidentally, via the youth's companion and its premium offerings. Bellamy envisioned a noble program of patriotic exercises, cleverly promoted not only to schools, but to American lawmakers. 1892 was a presidential election year, after all, and Bellamy's Columbus Day extravaganza here would be catnip for campaigning candidates. Bellamy spent the summer convincing both the sitting president, Benjamin Harrison, and his political rival, Grover Cleveland, not to mention scores of other politicians in Congress, of what a marvelous idea it was to tie an observance of Columbus Day to a public school program. Eventually, the president did issue a proclamation in the summer of 1892, recognizing what would then be called Discovery Day, quote, recommending to the people the observance in all their localities of the 400th anniversary of the discovery of America on the 21st of October, 1892, by public demonstrations and by suitable exercises in their schools and other places of assembly. Newspapers actually ran portions of President Harrison's decree that cribbed directly from Bellamy's own words. Let the national flag float over every schoolhouse in the country, and the exercises be such as shall impress upon our youth the patriotic duties of citizenship. This, of course, tied into the magazine's marketing plans for the fall. They began a huge ad campaign. 
Has your school yet obtained its flag for this great celebration? Ask your teacher to send for our flag certificates. By the sale of these flag certificates for 10 cents, each to the friends of your pupils, your school can raise money for its flag in one day. The schools would also need a ceremony in which to honor that flag. Now remember Balch's pledge? We give our heads and hearts to God and our country. One country, one language, and one flag. Bellamy didn't think it was very dignified. He even called it juvenile. So he and Ford's nephew, James Upham, began working on a new salute, something specific to this celebration and to the magazine's efforts. So much of the flag's ceremony would be developed between the two of them that the authorship of the pledge would later be questioned. But it was Bellamy that August who put together a series of words that embodied his own personal feelings of patriotism. It was my thought that a vow of loyalty or allegiance to the flag should be the the dominant idea. I especially stressed the word allegiance. Beginning with the new word allegiance, I first decided that pledge was a better school word than vow or swear, and that the first person singular should be used, and that my flag was preferable to the flag. Its original 22 words published in the September issue of the Youth's Companion were, I pledge allegiance to my flag in the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people 
escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. It's not immediately clear how many schools actually participated in the Youth Companions flag ceremony or how many children actually followed the directions and how the pledge was to be delivered. As the words were spoken, the right arm was extended towards the flag with the child's palm facing down. Now, this particular salute would turn out to be a rather controversial posture in later years. Nothing remains of the magazine's Columbus Day ceremonies except for the pledge, which would quickly resonate with Americans, with just a single change being quickly made by Bellamy, a change which would then bring the pledge to 23 words. I pledge allegiance to my flag and to the republic which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. The school flag proved a popular idea with Americans, and soon not only did most public schools fly flags, but by 1900 it was actually mandatory in almost half the country. Bellamy's pledge had adhered itself to the popularity of the flag and was soon part of the tradition. No mere decoration, the American flag in public schools became the focus for which people could express their patriotism in times of crisis and war. In 1916, as the conflict in Europe blazed into the First World War, President Woodrow Wilson declared the first observance of Flag Day, and the pledge, once relegated to a school ceremony, was now practiced by young and old alike, in all patriotic ceremonies where the centerpiece was the American flag. But a heightened pride for American values was just one factor in the popularity of Francis Bellamy's pledge. For alongside this celebration of the loyal was a fear of the disloyal. 27 million immigrants from all over the world came to the United States in a 50-year period from 1880 to 1930. And many believe these newcomers from Germany, Italy, Russia, and other places had ulterior motives and allegiances, bent on dismantling the American way of life. In fact, Bellamy, the author of the pledge, believed this himself. The hard inescapable fact is that men are not born equal. A democracy like ours cannot afford to throw itself open to the world where every man is a lawmaker. Every dull-witted or fanatical immigrant admitted to our citizenship is a bane to the commonwealth, where all classes of society merge insensibly into one another. Some anti-immigrant sentiments came from purely racist feelings, others from more legitimate fears of foreign influence. After World War I, America was both emboldened, emerging victorious from the war as a major superpower, and also paranoid fearful of corrupting ideologies. 
On June 14, 1923, a national committee met to create standard guidelines for displaying the flag. Naturally, the pledge was also introduced, and by the time of a second conference the following year, 1924, the wording of the pledge had been subtly altered. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Although the spirit of the changes certainly reflected some of the philosophies of its author, Francis Bellamy, he was not exactly pleased with the changes. In later years, the word, to my flag, were changed to, to the flag of the United States of America, because of the large number of foreign children in the schools, it did injure the rhythmic balance of the original composition. It's understandable that he might have felt embittered by the whole thing, for here at the end of his life, his authorship of the pledge was under question. You see, in the youth's companion, there were no bylines, no documented proof that it was Bellamy's work. The confusion, weirdly enough, began back in 1896, when a mischievous Kansas City boy coincidentally named Frank Bellamy submitted the pledge as his own work into a writing competition, which he then went on to win. Later, as the pledge reached greater prominence, many assumed Bellamy's editor at the Youth's Companion, James Upham, well, that he had written it. The Youth's Companion was in publication until 1929, and to the very end, it received fierce correspondence from Bellamy, asking its editors to validate his authorship to no avail. Bellamy died just two years later, in 1931. He did get some validation from another publication, though. The New York Times, which ran his obituary on August 29, 1931. The man who wrote The Pledge to the Flag is dead. Francis Bellamy, author of The Promise of Allegiance that thousands of schoolchildren and patriotic associations have recited, died in his home last night at the age of 75. The Pledge of Allegiance was formally adopted by the Congress of the United States in the summer of 1942, a little over six months after America entered the Second World War after the attack on Pearl Harbor. One little problem, the salute to the flag, you know, the right arm extended towards the flag with the palm facing downwards. For years, many critics had pointed out that what has today been called the Bellamy salute looked awfully similar to the salutes used by the rising fascist powers of Europe. America was literally going to war against Nazi Germany, who used the exact same salute to honor its Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler. Well, so obviously that wouldn't do. So by the winter, the flag code was amended again. From the code, quote, Persons present should face the flag and stand at attention with their right hand over the heart, and men not in uniform, if applicable, should remove their headdress with their right hand and hold it at the left shoulder, the hand being over the heart. There would be one final change to Bellamy's Pledge of Allegiance, and it would prove to be the most controversial of all. Interestingly, the first major legal challenges on a federal level aimed at the pledge came from religious groups. 
In the 1920s, Mennonites objected to the pledge due to their strict anti-war beliefs. Pledges to the flag meant pledging to a country that had been actively engaged in bloodshed. But it was the objections by Jehovah's Witnesses in the 1940s that brought the Supreme Court into the conversation. At first, in 1940, in a case called Minersville v. Gobitis, the court ruled against the witnesses who had objected to their children being forced to say the pledge in school. However, just three years later, in the midst of a war, in West Virginia State Board of Education versus Barnett, the court ruled for the witness by claiming, quote, the free speech clause of the First Amendment prohibits public schools from forcing students to salute the American flag and say the Pledge of Allegiance. Religion comes back into the picture again a little over a decade later, in 1954, with the final change made to the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Bellamy, an actual minister, had not seen fit to include a reference to God into his pledge and would certainly have objected to yet another intrusion into his rhythmic balance. People were now rethinking the relationship between church and state by the 1950s, especially with a new threat on the horizon, communism. Many believed a more directly stated connection between government and the divine brought modern life more in line with the thinking of the Founding Fathers. The words, under God, were added to the pledge on June 14, 1954. Those words, under God, have been subject to several prominent court cases, especially in the past 20 years, and each time, for one reason or another, those cases were rejected. Today's version of the Pledge of Allegiance is a little bit like an old house, repainted with each new owner, but a little piece of the past still sticking out at the corner. Now before I go, you may be wondering, well, isn't this a podcast about inventions? Well, inventions certainly are not all tangible objects or modern marvels. Francis Bellamy and the staff of the Youth's Companion invented a few tools of public patriotism, outward expressions that gained power and prominence through ritual. Some of those tools of patriotism, like the Bellamy Salute, that has been abandoned entirely. But some of those other tools, like the Pledge itself, have been retooled to reflect the world around us. So who knows what changes to the pledge may lay in store in the future. And finally, I should add that in the years since this show was first recorded, there have been some faint but lingering doubts about Bellamy's authorship of the pledge, relating to that mysterious letter from that other Frank Bellamy, the child, based upon a discovery made by historian Barry Popick and verified by Yale Law librarian Fred Shapiro, a nearly identical variation of the pledge recited by Kansas schoolchildren several months before the date that Bellany purports to have written it. 
Sam Roberts outlines this mystery in a 2022 article that I'll include in the show notes. Smithsonian curator Debbie Schaefer-Jacobs adds, quote, I think you can't rule out that Frank, the child, may have been the author, and that Francis, the adult, came across it and consciously or subconsciously used the words. Given that the pledge is so specifically connected to the childhood experience for most American kids, it would be incredibly shocking, don't you think, if we found out that, in fact, a child really did write it. Well, I love a good historical mystery. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. 